I walked off thinking I was gonna be the longer version. You just, you played me, Tracy. And I was like, let me go sit down because it was not the longer version in Jesus' name. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and meet me in uh, the book of Hosea. Uh, it's where we're going to be this week and next week. If you just want to go to the middle of your Bible, flip it open, uh, and then just start flipping to the left or, yes, to the left. Uh, what, what you'll see, you'll run into the book of Hosea. It's right after um, the book of Daniel. Um, Two-week journey where we get to sit at their feet learn from them. They have much to teach us regarding the gospel. And so we get to learn the good news of Jesus Christ by sitting at their feet. I'm excited for that. Um, truth be told, I've been eager about Sundays and even just from a preaching standpoint, not just what is um, in front of us right now, but really the intermediate future. And so even uh, this summer, hearing from our pastors as they walk through the book of Proverbs and they help us to understand God's heart, not just to give us wisdom, but to make us wise. It seems like God is infinitely more concerned with making us people who are wise rather than just giving us wisdom for particular moments. He wants to grow us to be something so that whatever moment is in front of us, we know how to operate, to operate out of wisdom, to draw from that well of wisdom. And our pastors are going to lead us in that space. I'm geeked about that. I'm geeked about how we're closing the summer to, to wrestle conceptually through this idea of spiritual formation, to be built from the inside out, to have something built deep into our hearts, into our bones, and to grow from that space. Excited about it. I'm excited about the fall. In many ways, I'm already there. We're going to be in the gospel of Luke, living in Luke for a long time. Been wanting to preach Luke for some years now, but, you know, stuff has prevented us. But it's coming. We can just work through who Jesus is, son of man, son of God. And the implications thereof for all people everywhere, excited about what's coming up. Hopefully you join us on this journey that you don't tap out, but you lock in. Um, but I'm not just excited about where we're going. I'm really excited about where we're going to be at for the next two weeks what I want to do um, today particularly is draw out an idea and then root it in the text in front of us. It is a single transformative idea that really changes everything. It should land on every human heart. It should be drilled down deep into our, our soul, the fabric of our, our, our being. It is a, a single dominating idea that is really the expression of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. But while I, while I want to draw out this, this single idea and I want to root it in the text, absolutely, and, and it should land on every single one of us, there actually is a few people that I have in mind. Let me give you the people. By the way, long intro in case there's confusion on what's happening here. Long intro, and then we're going to get to the text. But um, let me give you the people that I, that I really want um, this to land on. There's, there's, a, there's a few groups of people. The first is I want this to land on those who are settling for what you can get relationally. Like the people who are settling 
for what they could get relationally, both as it relates to God and other people. Now, I'm not going to lie. As it relates to other people, I'm really thinking about marriages right now. But those who are settling for what you could get relationally, I'm not going to go into each one of the categories, but let me, let me just express this one a little bit. When you settle for what you can get relationally, what defines your experience is more blah than beauty. This is kind of there. It's boredom. It's just ritual, not richness, not vibrancy. And when you, when, you, when you have that be the primary way to describe or mark your Christian experience particularly, it, it's reflecting dwindling or dying affections. And when affections dwindle or die, they create the door of departure. You stop feeling deeply and then you leave eventually. I've watched it happen to Christians in my pastoral journey, it breaks my heart, but it's clear the sequence. You stop caring, then you stop showing up. You stop coming. Now that doesn't just happen in our relationship with God. That's where some of your marriages are right now. It's just ritual. There's not richness, there's not vibrancy there. And this single transformative truth, I don't want it to just land on everybody, I want it to land on you, those who are Settling for what you can get relationally. You're not expecting much anymore. It's blah, not beautiful. There's another group. Um, the second group is, is those who are living under the weight of condemnation. And so the reality of your sin and your brokenness, you feel it. I don't need to explain it to you. So even the text today is going to frustrate you a little bit. It may feel like, oh my gosh, like I already know this. Amen. But there's this desire for forgiveness. But forgiveness feels more fairy tale than real life story. It feels more like a foreign relationship than familiar and family. And you are living under the weight of condemnation. Best way I could um, express this, let me, I'm not gonna do this with everyone, but I wanna do this with this one particularly because I've had a lot of conversations, not just in Miami, not just in our church, but just really in the last few years. And it just seems like people are just living under the weight of condemnation. So let me give you this expression. If you're a millennial male, born in the 80s, raised in the best generation, the 90s, amen, for all of us. Man, this, oh, yes, yes. But, so if you're, if you're a millennial male, you understand this more than anybody. You went through a season where backpacks for you were more fashion than function. And so whether it was your junior year to your sophomore year in college, you had those small backpacks, you used to tie the, you know, the straps really close, and they were cartoon backpacks, yes? Yes? And some of you are like, oh man, that SpongeBob backpack used to hit. Amen, no judgment. I just know that you did it. I did as well, had a Ninja Turtle backpack. But backpacks aren't necessarily for fashion, they are for function. And so I was known as a nerd. AP classes, cool, loved anime, still do, in Jesus' name. The new Bleach is coming out in fall of 2022. It's glorious, all right? So my, I had backpacks at first that were, they were for function. And I would have my AP history book in there. I would have my AP science book in there. I had my cow book in high, it was ridiculous in there. Before I realized that, you know what I could do? I could use lockers but I would go around with this huge backpack, people looking at me, and my shoulders would be just, oh my gosh. I saw my daughter, 
She's in middle school. And I'm like, you don't need all of that. When you are living under the weight of condemnation, it's kind of like you have that backpack that's just stacked with books. It's heavy. It's heavy. And your soul is tired. I get to the end of my school day and I'd be like, man, I just need somebody to rub my shoulders. And that's how sin started to creep in. And some of you, your soul is just tired because you're not free from sin. And you're living under the weight of condemnation. I want this truth to land on you differently. A few more categories and we're going to get to the text. I said it was a long intro. Those exhausted by the me again moments. Now, it's very similar to those living under the weight of condemnation. But the me again moments, we talked about them before. But they're the moments where you you said you're never going to do this. and, And here we go again. And there's a type of bondage that you feel you stopped believing freedom was possible and you've resigned yourself to live with the chains and I'm saying this truth should hit you differently today. Last two categories. Those with an imbalanced view of God and self. And there's a, there's a lot of ways that imbalanced view is expressed but the, the way I have it in mind that I'm really like, yo, I want God to speak to you differently is God isn't as holy as he says he is. And you don't think he's as loving as he says he is. And it shows up in the decisions that you make, what you choose, what you don't. He's not holy or he's not as loving. And it's an imbalanced view of God and it creates an imbalanced view of self. We don't relate to ourselves appropriately because we're not seeing God well Would this truth land on you? And then the last category would be those who are the pursuers of restoration. You see broken relationships and you instinctively move to repair. And some of you do it out of a sincerity of heart, but your tactics are trash. So you're not actually creating restoration. You're creating more brokenness. So I want to maybe equip us a little bit differently with this truth. The, the, the truth is this, this idea is this, that we are a mess and yet deeply loved. That is the single dominating truth that is drawn out from Hosea, that it exemplifies the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when you look at the cross of Christ, it makes statements about us, it makes statements about sin, and it makes statements about God. And the collision of the statements that are made, the audacious statements that are made, are we are a mess and yet deeply loved. Now, that, you know, collection of words put together, I'm not the first person to say that. In fact, Many people who just read the Bible, like, that's the conclusion that you come to. I think there's really two people who have articulated it this way. The first is Tim Keller and and how he's talked about this idea of how bad things really are, but how great they really are in Jesus as well. And then B.J. Thompson, who literally he has this phrase, he has it on all his paraphernalia through Build a Better Us, an initiative he started. His hoodies are fire. But this is the single dominating idea. We are a mess and yet deeply loved. That's the gospel. Exemplified in Jesus, particularly the cross, and expressed in the story that's told 
between Gomer and Hosea. So the rest of our time is really exploring that idea. It's applying that idea. It's rooting that idea in our hearts. And the way we're gonna do it, the movement is gonna be, we're just gonna take the first part of that idea, we are a mess. We're gonna explore it, we're gonna root it, and then we're gonna apply it. And then we're gonna take the second part of that idea, and yet deeply loved. And we're gonna explore it, we're gonna root it, and we're gonna apply it. And then we're gonna close with what I hope would be some tools um, for today and on. Hosea, let's get to work. I'm only gonna read a little bit of it. Chip, you did a great job reading for it before. So I'm just gonna read where I, where I feel like the we are a mess portion pops all the more. Uh, read with me, Hosea 2, 5 through 8. It reads like this. Yes, uh, their mother is promiscuous. <laughs> she conceived them and acted shamefully. For she thought, I will follow my lovers, the men who give me food and water, my wool and flax, my oil and drink. Therefore, this is what I will do. I will block her way with thorns. I will enclose her with a wall so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, so she's going to keep doing it. She will pursue her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will think, ah, great idea, I will go back to my former husband, for then it was better for me than now. She does not recognize that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the fresh oil, and I lavished silver and gold on her, which they used for bow. Hosea is a wild book. <laughs> the joke is wild, yeah. Um, the breakdown of Hosea, again, taking this in 14 chapters in two weeks. All right, praise God, pray for me. But the breakdown of the book, if you want to just have some handlebars to understand the book, there's really two parts of it. Volume one, volume two, kind of like Stranger Things season four, in Jesus' name. Volume one, or part one, would be chapters one through three. Chapters one through three, they give us the illustration. God is making a point. And he is going to use an illustration to make that point, and that is seen in chapters 1 to 3. Chapters 4 through 14 are just a commentary. They're God explaining this illustration, going deeper into it, going into the implications of it, what's going to happen as a result of it, what's going to happen to his people, what's going to happen because of their decisions and what God is going to do. That is the book of Hosea. This illustration and its implications applied over and over again. So it's actually super repetitive. But the illustration is remarkable. It's found in, in Hosea chapter 1, 2. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, Go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity, for the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. That is crazy. That's crazy. But what they're doing is crazy. The illustration is, Hosea, I want you to go marry a woman of promiscuity. Now, some people are like, maybe she was a cold prostitute before. Some people are like, she wasn't that, but she entered into it. It's actually not the point. 
but I want you to marry a woman of promiscuity. This is essentially just going to be who she is, reflecting her identity as well as her decisions. And you're going to have children. And this is going to be the illustration. You are going to reflect me. So, so you are going to be an analogy to me. She is going to be an analogy to the people of Israel, particularly the 10 tribes of the north, the northern kingdom, although it was all of them, but the, the 10 tribes of the north. And your children, they're going to be an illustration of the generations that follow because of the decisions that you're making. Go do this. Crazy call. But I cannot stress enough what the people were doing was wild. And the reason I start there is because as we explore this idea that we are a mess, the larger frame is this. We are a mess not because of the circumstances we find ourselves in. We are a mess because of the choices that we make that reflect the conditions of our hearts. Go do this crazy act because my people are doing this crazy thing and he says it's called abandoning me. My people are betraying me. That doesn't hit the way it should. There's a force there. We should see its insanity, its wickedness, how wild it actually is. Have you ever heard of the concept of somebody being born with a silver spoon in their mouth? What we're saying is they're born advantaged. Whether that advantage shows up in access, whether that advantage shows up in like the people around them that could build into them, they're born with a sense of advantage. And so when they start to do certain things, you're like, fam, you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth. What you doing? You wildin', yes? Your actions actually don't make sense. Now, if you were born in this situation, they make a little bit more sense, which is ridiculous, but it is what it is. The children of Israel were born with a spiritual silver spoon in their mouth. Out of all of the nations of the world, God said, I am not going to interact with everybody the same way. I'm going to interact with you uniquely. We just spent weeks working through Exodus. God said, out of all the nations, I am zooming in on you so I can have this unique demonstration of my love, this unique experience of my goodness. You will know me differently and truly. Jesus is going to bring this out in John chapter 4 in the conversation with the Samaritan woman. As they're doing this conversation, she hits him with some Jesus juice because she gets religious because she doesn't want to deal with the issues of her heart. Jesus doesn't like submit to that. He redirects her consistently. And then he talks about this idea that that salvation is from the Jews. Now, ultimately, it's for everybody, but the vehicle by which the world will be transformed was this people, the Jews. They were born spiritually advantaged, not because they had the wherewithal within them. This is from all my reformed people. You're like, well, this kind of circumstances because we're in Adam, we all die and we were born in Adam. That's not the point. Feel the force here. They had all the tools to be in consistent, life-giving, vibrant relationship with the God of Israel, and they said no. The circumstances were set up for them to flourish. But we are a mess, 
And it is not because of the circumstances we're in, it's because of the choices that we make that reflect the conditions of our hearts, every single one of us. And so while she, Gomer, is an analogy for them, children of Israel, she really becomes an illustration for all of humanity, particularly the people of God, the church. So if you're a Christian, you should feel this with a different level of force. He's talking to us. Christians are a mess. Let's build into the depth of that though. The fact that we're a mess can be expressed in our actions, our rationale, and our attitudes. Notice her actions. We read it, but essentially she's doing three things. She's loving things that she shouldn't. She's loving things that she should out of order. And she's loving things out of place. That is how the scriptures talk about sin, by the way. All of her actions are reflecting sin. Sin is loving things that we shouldn't. We shouldn't delight in wickedness. That's not a good thing. And so if you're like, man, I just, I just love stealing. Some of you are like, who, who does that? Ocean's Eleven. We watched the movie with the kids last night called The Bad Guys. Well, the movie watched us because we were exhausted, but it is what it is. And in that, there's just people who just kind of love stealing. And some of you actually love stealing. Some of you just love cheating. Some of you love the hustle. But the way you love the hustle is actually getting over on other people. Does that, does that make sense? So it's sin. It's loving things that we shouldn't. But it's not just loving things that we, we shouldn't. It's loving things that we should out of order. This is Augustine and sin being disordered love. And what, what we see in her, there's some base desires that she have. I, I, I want to be clove. I, I want to experience joy. But, but the order of all of this, we talked about this before, is well, first and foremost, I need to love God rightly so that I can love everything else as I should. God is on a back burner. So she's loving things out of order, but she's also loving things out of place. That's the one that pops the most. She is going to false gods for satisfaction. It's a real, it's a real need to be satisfied. She's just going to the wrong place to do it. We, we drill into the relationship here. It says that she is going to other men instead of her husband. So she is going to other men for protection, for provision, and for intimacy. When the place that she's supposed to be experiencing that is with her husband, Hosea. She is a mess. Hot mess. She is us. Those are the actions. The actions reveal sin present and at work in our lives. The actions reveal that this is more than just rule breaking, but the violation of relationship, which is how the scriptures talk about sin. Not merely breaking of rules, but violating relationships. First and foremost, the relationship that we have with God and secondarily, the relationship that we have with other people. In fact, it seems that God emphasizes the way you violate the relationship with me is by violating the relationship with other people. 
This is David and Bathsheba, where he used his power and as well as his wicked desires to, to wrong and violate this woman. And then he gets confronted and a statement that he makes is against heaven. Have I sinned against you, O God? Have I sinned and sinned alone, even though it's clear that he is violating her? Does that make sense? But God doesn't come in and say, well, no, actually, you didn't really violate me. You violated her. He says, yes. Sin is a violation of relationships. We are a mess. It's reflected in our actions, but it's not just reflected in our actions. It's exposed in our rationale. Right? If our actions are behavior, the rationale is the beliefs behind it, the why behind the what's. Notice this. This is verse three. The men who give me my food and water, my wool and flax and my oil and drink. The belief that's driving her is that they could provide something better for me than my husband can. The rationale behind our sin, our beliefs, expose not just what we believe about self or about the theme, it exposes what we believe about God. We know this to be true because God is coming in here. He's going to correct this. This is what he says in verse 8. She does not recognize that it is I who gave her the grain and the new wine and the fresh oil. All the things that she was searching for over there, believing that if she got it over there, she would be satisfied. She doesn't recognize I'm the one who's actually providing it. It's bad beliefs. It's rationale. Our rationale and our beliefs reveal that we are a mess. It's not just the behaviors. It's our beliefs. And there's brokenness in them. But it's not just our behaviors. It's not just our beliefs our rationale, it's our attitudes. Notice this. This hit me differently, and I was like, man, God, oof. But then it also, again, I'm living in Luke right now, so, so there's that. But, but notice, what, notice this in, in, in verse 7. She will pursue her, loves, her, her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. She will think, I will go back to my former husband, for then it was better for me than now. If you're familiar with Luke, this is Luke 15, all over it. Son, lost son, squanders, blessing, eating with pigs that has a moment. You know what? It was actually better back with my dad. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to go home, and I'm going to start to try to plead with him, and hopefully he'll take me back. And what's crazy about that story and what's crazy about here is her attitude is not sincerity. This is not sincere sadness for the decisions that she's made. This is survival. This is utilitarian activity. Well, I'm just going to make a pragmatic choice. Those who find God merely useful will stop being in a relationship with him when his usefulness isn't apparent. There's not a lot of utility to like stepping into God's obedience for generosity with our resources when you're scrapping to make ends meet. So you stop doing it. 
There's not a lot of utility in reading the Bible or praying when you don't feel like God is talking back. So you stop doing it. There's not a lot of, do I need to keep going? When the core of you, like the way we relate to somebody is utility, when they cease being useful, we cease to be in relationship with them. And what is driving her, her attitude, it is not sincerity. It is utility. It's survival. It is not, you know what? Dag, yo, like, I just cheated on my husband. I was out there in these streets. I was out there abandoning my children. I was out there making statements about God and causing other people to walk away because now they have a distorted picture of him. I was out there ruining my life. It's not sincerity. It's not, I have actually wronged the God of the universe. It's that, you know what? It's a better situation for me. Guys, this is, this is us. <laughs> we are a mess. And it is not, be, it's not merely because of the behaviors and the choices. It is not merely because of like the beliefs. It's because of our attitudes that we'll even do the right things for the wrong reasons. We are a mess. And the thing about being a mess is it brings consequences. Because we're a mess, it makes a statement and it brings consequences because that's what sin does. Sin makes statements and sin brings consequences. The people of God are making a statement with their sin and God wants them to see it. Because you have betrayed me, you are making a statement regarding me. You are saying that I am not fulfilling. You are saying that I am not worthy. You are saying that I am not capable. You are saying that I am not good. Therefore, you are saying that I am not God. Our sin makes a statement regarding God. It also makes statements regarding ourselves. No, notice this. She's driven by desire. Now, when we're just moving in step with our instincts, we're nothing more than beasts. There's an entire complex that makes up our humanity. You know, Rene, back in the day, he had the whole philosophical statement, I think, therefore I am, right? And so, so I'm a thinking thing, and we know that's true, but it's not the complete truth. We are thinking things, but we are also feeling things. We have deep desires. We are also willful things. We act out of beliefs. There's an entire complex that shapes who we are, our, our practices. One of the books that we read pastorally is You Are What You Love, and it's this idea that you, you, are, you are shaped by the practices, the, the perspectives that you have, the, the habits that you create. There's an entire complex that makes us human. But when we just move in step with one of those, whether it's our mind or whether it's our desires, like she is here, we are saying that we are subhuman. That's why sin dehumanizes. Make statements. 
but it brings consequence. Notice the consequences here. It's crazy, yo. This is going to be seen at the end of chapter 2 and particularly chapter 4. The end of chapter 2, it says, I will devastate her vines and fig trees. She thinks that these are her wages, that her lovers have given them to him. I will turn them into a thicket. It's actually self-inflicted consequences. What you're seeking after is actually going to sabotage your life. Furthermore, it's not just self-inflicted consequences. There's social and systemic consequences as well. This is chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. He says this. Remember, commentary. So you move from the illustration to the commentary. And so now he's trying to explain what's happening more. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this. Hear the word of the Lord, people of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth, no faithful love, and no knowledge of God in the land. Cursing, lying, murdering, stealing, and adultery are rampant. One act of bloodshed follows another. And what he's showing is this is actually sequence and relationship. There's a tie between the two. That when the people of God step into sin, there are social expressions of brokenness everywhere. You see that consistently when the prophets speak. He's like, there's a lot of bloodshed. And what you find that I think is so fascinating is that while he's indicting their bloodshed, the core reason that it keeps happening is because of their adultery and their idolatry. That they've betrayed God and have created false gods. And as a result, the world around them is suffering. Sin makes statements and it brings consequences. And if we take this out, not just from its immediate context, which is evident here, but we take it out to the overarching story, which is why we're learning from her and we're learning from him, the consequence is death. When there's sin in relationships, death is present. We know this on a practical, horizontal level. But God says, that's because it's true primarily on a vertical level. That our sin deads the relationship with God. We are a mess. We are a mess. You know what happens? When we are like, man, this is kind of depressing. Get to the good part. You know what happens when you realize you're a mess? There's a couple of things you do. When you realize you're a mess, one of the things you, you do is you try to cover it up. We cover up what's most broken with us. But you know what I notice about covering up? Sometimes the covering up isn't by hiding as much as it's by being convinced and accustomed to something. So you're convinced that this is all of who you are and you're accustomed to it. You're now comfortable with it. You cover it up. Best way I could express this is everybody has the backseat of the car or that one chair in their house. It's the magnet of mess, right? Like you come out from work, there goes my jersey, there goes my hoodie, it just starts, like that chair just starts to attract stuff, all types of clutter. Some of you, again, that may be the backseat of your car. And you're just, it's just, you're just comfortable with it. So you walk past it regularly and it takes somebody else coming in to say, wait a second, fam, what is this? If, if you start peeling back the layers, how many roaches are going to come off? You know? Right? But we cover it up, and sometimes we need exposure, which is what is happening here. You know what happens when we 
realize we're a mess, we compare ourselves to others. Yeah, I'm a mess, but I'm not as messed up as that person. Right? Self-righteous. In other words, we become the standard that we relate to God by, and then we become the standard that we hold other people to. Yeah, I'm a mess, but I'm not out here beating my wife, just cheating on my taxes. You know what else? We choose to be calloused. We stop feeling. It's too scary to feel, man. It's too scary to feel the depths of our brokenness. To just be confronted with how bad things really are. It's terrifying. It's not just sobering. It grieves us. So we choose to become callous. We are a mess, but that doesn't have to be our conclusion. We are a mess and yet deeply loved. Notice the love here. Verse one, call your brothers my people and your sisters compassion. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the promiscuous look from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Verses one through two. And that latter part of verse two is like, man, it seems like he's just kind of talking about her. But it is, it is couched in pursuit and love. To be deeply loved equals at least three things. First, it means that we are truly seen. Second, it means that we are fully known. And third, it means that we are loved well. That's what it means to be deeply loved, to be truly seen. It means that God takes note of us with honesty, all of us, to be fully known. Every fabric of our being is laid bare before him. That means our choices. That means our beliefs. That means our attitudes. Even when we do the right things for the wrong reasons, we're not fooling him. Yet, he moves to love us well. Call her. Call her. If you look through chapter 2, this phrase shows up at least 22 times, I will. I will, I am, shows up some 22 times in chapter 22, ch chapter two. From the beginning to the end, it's God saying, I'm gonna do this, 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 I'm gonna do this. Every single part of chapter two is God moving for her. Loving well. So even when it's saying, listen, I'm going to sabotage your life so that these counterfeit sources of satisfaction stop working, I'm doing it not to punish you. I'm doing it to awaken you. Speak tenderly to her. I'm going to step in 
and you're going to feel my presence and you're going to feel my closeness. You're going to feel my love. Next week, we're going to go into the anatomy of love. It's powerful. But he's like, I'm, like, I'm going to step in. We are a mess and yet we are deeply loved. It's like pistachio ice cream. Um, I don't like pistachios like that. I don't know if it's because it takes too long to actually get the pistachio from the nut. I don't. But pistachio ice cream is fire. It's what mint ice cream is supposed to be like. Mint chocolate chip is terrible. It's like toothpaste. But pistachio ice cream is from the throne of God. Individually, ice cream is cool. Pistachios, for some people who have the patience, it's cool. But together, they pop. We are a mess. It's true, but it will crush us. Deeply loved, it's true, but there's a force to it. Together, it pops. To be deeply loved, chapter three, go again to your wife. Where she is in bondage. This is chapter three. Chapter three, uh, verse um, two. I bought her for 15 shekels of slavery, of silver, and nine bushels of barley. In other words, it, it'd be about 30, 30 shekels of silver would, would be um, what you would use to purchase somebody who's in slavery. It's the worth of a slave, which, by the way, says something about how they value Jesus when they betrayed him. But she's in bondage because of her actions. And he's saying to Hosea, you go to her and you go free her. In other words, again, this is analogous to him because that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to wait for them to get free. I'm going to go to them in their bondage, in their betrayal. This is verse one, who is... Show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, not former adulteress. She's still in these sheets with another man. And he's like, yo, you, you go show love to her, which is Romans 5, 8. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Not some future version of us that's all cleaned up, that has it all put together, but where we are. This is the pop. We are a mess yet deeply loved. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go purchase your wife who's in bondage and slavery. Mark 10, the son of man didn't come to be served but to give his life as a ransom for many, to purchase them from what enslaves them. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And when this lands on us, if you're in those categories, you know what happens? When we embrace this, it frees us because we don't have to cover up the fact that we're a mess. We don't have to compare ourselves to other people. We don't have to be calloused. We can say, yeah. I'm a mess, and you have no idea how bad I actually am. But you know what else? I'm deeply loved. 
where I am, loved well. The rest of this story is not just God pursuing her one time, but trying to produce her into someone. And that's love well. I love you enough to say this is where you are, but I'm not going to let you stay where you are. That's what God does. And we want, we want to be loved well when we know that we're a mess. But we'll settle for people just being close to us. And God says, I don't want closeness alone. I want transformation. When this lands, we're free and we're fueled. Because we don't have to do a thing. Remember, I will 22 times. The determination of God to love us well is more powerful than we can ever imagine. He says it's his plan. This is Ephesians chapter three. The plan for eternity, the plan for ages is to show off his kindness, which is immeasurable in the way he loves people. So that the host of heavens would say, you make that make sense to me, that you could be that good to know who they are to see them truly, to know them fully, and still love them. The word for that is grace. When this truth lands on us, that we are a mess, but deeply loved, grace comes alive in our hearts. So I close with this, take inventory. Take inventory of your heart. Take inventory. Being a mess means that we wander. So ask yourself the question, where are you wandering from God right now? Take inventory. Being deeply loved means that God woos us. Speak tenderly to her. He's wooing. How is God wooing you? Sometimes God woos us through frustrating us. Where are the frustrations in your life right now? Could that be God wooing you to something even better? Take inventory. How will you respond? Gomer is given a choice in the matter. <laughs> and the rest of the story shows this ongoing wrestle but it also shows this ongoing pursuit of God. So how will you respond? We are a mess and yet deeply loved. The story of Gomer and Hosea, the story of the gospel, pray with me. Father, to the self-righteous in here, Lord. Brokenness is needed to be gripped by the weight of how bad they think they are. to 
not just have that be a cognitive exercise, but to have that live deep in the heart. We are a mess. To the self-righteous God, would you break them truly? God, to those consumed by the fact that they are a mess, they know it, there's a weight here. This doesn't feel good. It's like, oh man, you're zooming the light in on me. I notice already, God, remind them of the truth they heard today. They are deeply loved by you. Would the reminder come in the form of community actually loving them well, which implies transparency that they are seen. There's not enough words to unfold the depth of your kindness towards us, your people. Who should know better, but we don't do better. And yet, you have not said you're through. God, would your determination to love us well, dealing with what's most broken in us, displaying what's most beautiful in you with your determination to love us well, free and fuel us in tremendous transformative ways today. Whether that looks like confession, we, we, we gotta go talk to some people and say, this is going on in my life. Whether that looks like confession, whether that looks like a line in the sand, I will not return to this place again. So help me, God. Will we be freed and fueled by your determination of love? This we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.